Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your host is Michelle Beck. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, thrivers, their friends and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Michelle Beck. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Michelle Beck. I am a two-time, almost 10-year survivor of breast cancer. I am the patient programs assistant at Breast Friends of Oregon. And when I have time, I write at a blog. And you can find me on social media at I Never Liked Pink. So today, such a pleasure to have our guest. Her name is Teresa Brown. She is a her career was based as being an oncology and a hospice nurse. She's a New York Times bestselling author, a speaker, an educator, an advocate, and a woman impacted by breast cancer. So today we're going to talk about all of that and more. And she really digs into a book um, in her book, Healing, When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. So um, we're going to talk about the lack of control when that happens, but also how much compassion should be shown to patients what might be lacking in our healthcare system, things that she wishes she knew before her diagnosis when dealing with her own patients, and so much more. So, Teresa, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. So it is definitely a pl- my pleasure. And I just finished reading your book a couple of days ago and it is so powerful. And I think I, I messaged you right as I finished the prologue and I was like, oh, it, it, it brought me back to my own journey. And you, it, I was in tears remembering, but then as I got through the book, I was like, wow, you really had some amazing words of wisdom, I guess. So I appreciate oh, thank that. You. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, not the cancer stuff? Cause we'll get there. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Well, the thing people always find surprising is that I actually have a PhD in English. I grew up in Southern Missouri. My dad was a professor and I thought I wanted to have his career. It just looked very cool to me, you know, molding young minds and uh, (laughs) living a life of books and ideas. And um, so I got my PhD. I taught at Tufts for three years and I found out that what I imagined was my dream job was fine. Was not. <laughs> was not. Yes, was not. Um, so then I'd spent six years getting a PhD and had to decide, okay, now what do I want to be when I grow up? Um, and in that time, um, also became a mom and found this whole new part of myself that liked caring and looking out for people. And what I often say is I fell in love with the mess of life. <laughs> Um, which some people really get and others don't. So if you really get that, then we're probably, you know, some sort of career soulmates. Um, Well, because nothing, nothing in life goes the way you planned. I, you know, I never thought in the, you know, the last chapter of my professional life that I would become a breast cancer advocate. So it it takes you in funny directions. And if you don't embrace the mess of it, you're going to be pissed off most of the time. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. So then, okay. So what kind of job lets you deal with the mess of life? And I mean that in a very positive way. Uh, A friend who's a nurse said, you know, you could become a nurse. And I thought, really? Um, And then I found out that I could become a nurse. So Never crossed my mind. Um, and and you at this at this point, did you already have your kids? So you went back to you went to nursing school after your kids? Yeah, I I now I had to take a bunch of science classes. Oh, oh so, god, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually really I liked them because they were so concrete. 
just like, this is the liver, you know, there's no Uh interpretation, unlike being in English. Um, So I really liked that having, there's a right and a wrong answer. And and I found that very comforting. Um, But I took one class at a time while my twins got old enough for kindergarten. And yeah, then I dived into an accelerated program and we ended up moving to Pittsburgh. And so I did Pitt's program, which was like a crazy, crazy year. Um, But then I, I was done. I was a nurse. And then how did you get into oncology and hospice? Because that is not an easy, you're not helping women deliver babies. You're dealing with people who have a life-threatening illness or possibly at the end of their life. What, obviously you have a very special heart to go into that field. And what made you choose that? Oh, that's, that's nice. Actually, I was drawn to nursing in part because of midwifery and labor and delivery. And then a friend of mine said, Teresa, you went from life to death. What's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a big switch. Yeah. Uh, but the truth is, I really got into the Zen of it, um, okay. that there's nothing like working with cancer patients and in hospice to make what's really important in life become clear. And then also there's a lot of cancer in my mom's family. Um, she's the youngest of seven and um, all but one had some kind of cancer and all but her, it was a solid tumor cancer. But mm-hmm. also as I talk about in healing, my mom, when I was in my early twenties was diagnosed with hairy cell leukemia um, and then which is, if people don't know, it's a rare leukemia. People usually die with it, not of it. Um, People can, it can become acute and then you need treatment, but hers never became acute. And then a great treatment came out. She's been remission for years. And I've kind of packed that away um, in the part of my brain where memories go to hide. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I realized about three years in to working with leukemia patients, that that was a huge part of why at some point the light bulb went off. You're like, Oh, okay. That makes sense now. Yes. Yes. Suddenly it all made sense. Now with that, the, um, large amount of cancer in your mom's side of the family, did you ever, did you worry about getting it yourself? I did. I, I did. It was always kind of on the back burner, especially because my maternal grandmother had two breast cancers Um, we're not sure if it was a cervical cancer or a uterine cancer and then a skin cancer. And Mm. did she also have colon cancer? I mean, I really, I really wonder what was in the water or did she just have some very unusual genetic profile? Um, She, you know, probably had SNPs in various genes and mm -hmm. yes. Um, so yeah, it has always been on the back burner and, you know, I, I never would have thought before I was diagnosed that I had this idea like, oh, I'm um, protecting myself from cancer by working with cancer. Like I'm sort of creating an invulnerability while at the same time, once I was diagnosed, I realized I also had this fear. Am I making it more likely that I'm going to have cancer by working with cancer patients? So it was a complicated mess in my brain. It is. Our our minds do crazy things. And especially coming from 
being a medical practitioner that you, you talk about this in your book that often doctors and nurses kind of feel invulnerable. Like Mm -hmm. they, they can do everything. They, they have all the knowledge and, you know, so they're kind of protected, but that is not the case. So you were diagnosed at age 44. Is that correct? Wait, it's been almost no 51. Oh, sorry. I I apologize. That's my guest next week. I started reading her book yesterday. (laughs) So 51 regular mammogram. Yes. Uh, follow up to a regular mammogram. And I was mm-hmm. part of a study that was doing ultrasound with mammography. Okay. Um, so got called back as I often do. And it was actually found on the ultrasound, not the mammogram. So I, I felt no lump mm-hmm. thing. Um, and it was and early stage. Very, yes. Stage one. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it um, started out as ductal. If people know this, like in the milk duct, Mm-hmm. So that's often called DCIS. If it stays in the milk duct, mine um, burst out. And so then it's called invasive, which I think is a terrible, scary word, but it is. You just think of the cancer coming yes. in and just invading your entire breast and then your body. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, maybe they should just call it breast tissue cancer or something because it's mm-hmm. not in the milk duct. It just means that it invaded into the rest of the breast. It doesn't, right, right mean it's like a, you know, a cancer that's like a bunch of space aliens that comes in. And <laughs> over I don't, I don't know. Kind breast. of, I feel like it, it kind of is actually because <laughs> they're aliens because they're, it's, they're in a foreign territory. They're not supposed to be there. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And treatment wise, what did you go through? I had a lumpectomy and then five uh, days a week for four weeks, radiation, and then uh, tamoxifen. So no chemotherapy. You know, I've been through it twice and I have not had chemo either. So um, very, very, very fortunate. Both of mine were caught very early, one in each breast. Um, But listeners, I have to tell you, this woman is a badass. So she (laughs) went through her surgeries and everything. She rode her bike every day to radiation in Pittsburgh weather. So in literally December and January, I believe is what it was. So, um, yeah. So just, if you ever need some inspiration, just think about that. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, and and I should tell people, I, I mean, we, we write a lot. My husband and I've written a lot. We've written as a family and, and somehow it made me feel like, I was doing something. I wasn't just mm-hmm. going to radiation therapy. And, uh, you know, at one point I say, I, I really wasn't trying to prove I was tougher than cancer. And then later I think, you know, maybe I was trying to prove I was tougher than cancer. Well, it, it, it messes with your head. It really oh, does. 100%. And also too, cancer takes away control of so many things in our life. And you doing that is like, no, this is one thing that I still have control over. And it is, it is definitely recommended if possible to continue moving your body through treatment. So that probably has definitely helped you moving forward as well, because for many during treatment, they become very stagnant for a variety of reasons. The, the exhaustion, the, the not feeling well, I mean, there's so many reasons. So I would say that you were really kind of coming out on the better, better end of it for yourself. Yeah, well, and there's a chapter in the book about the personal trainer I work out with. Um, I disguised her name, but um, as most people in the book, but she never wavered in in supporting me and wanting to continue to work out because I told her I got the diagnosis and I said, I don't want to 
stop coming here. And she said, I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. You want to keep your body strong, not in a, like a, like a, I'm telling you what to do, but in a, a way that felt very supportive. And so it, having accountability to her, but also knowing, you know, she would adapt. So the restrictions I had after my surgery, we just worked with them, you know, it, um, she was right there for me. And I know not everybody can afford that, but, um, that's probably my, you know, one of my biggest, um, discretionary <laughs> expenditures. Mm-hmm. You have and, to find what works for you. Yeah, right. And it, it, it really, was worth it. And, and just feeling like, Oh, I can still lift weights. And then I got to where I could lift even more weight than I could before cancer. And it felt like, wow, this is not the end of my life. You know, it not even close. It's a bump in the road, but you, we work through those bumps and because life is a mess, as you said earlier, yes. <laughs> now, do you it's feel a good way, but still a mess? Yes. It is. You no, know, we, but we love the mess. So yes. do you feel that experience, what you had experienced in your professional career prepared you for becoming the patient? No, uh, I, I thought it would. Um, the, the really weird thing that happened was I forgot I never took care of breast cancer patients unless they were very, very sick. So on Mm -hmm. on hospice, if they were dying, I took care of them. But, you know, I knew the basic stuff. What's staging? What are the tumor Mm -hmm. markers? I forgot all of that, um, which is a not unusual response to trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. People should know that. Like, don't just be hard on yourself. This is your brain trying to protect you. You may not like the way it's trying to protect you, (laughs) but that is what it's doing. It's trying to take care of you. Um, uh, Yeah, so that surprised me. But the thing that really, really surprised me and inspired me to write the book was seeing how little compassion, coordination, care in the truest sense of the word there was. I could not believe that. And, And it started with, so I had the ultrasound. She said, I see a mass, which if, if you've been through it and now you've been through it twice, you know that it, it really is like a lightning bolt coming into your life. And you feel like, wow, nothing is going to be the same again. It doesn't mean that that change is going to be bad, but it's not going to be the same. But they said, okay, you won't leave here without an appointment for a biopsy because a scan is never a hundred percent. They have to look at part of the tumor to say mm-hmm. whether or not you really have cancer, just to explain. Um, and then I went and sat and waited to schedule a biopsy and no one came and no one came. And finally a different receptionist came by and said, Oh, she leaves at three. You just missed her. Yeah. And I wanted to smash that person in the face. I was so angry and reflecting on it later, I realized so many things got broken in that moment. My sense of trust and the system. Your trust in the system, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like someone here is looking out for me. You know, I wondered what if I hadn't called the next day or the next day or the next day to schedule a biopsy? Um, you know, what I've been, quote, lost to follow up. It, it just seemed like the uh, casualness of their attitude was... Uh, amazing in a bad way. Um, and that surprised me. That is what mm-hmm. surprised me because I thought, yeah, there are glitches in the system, but we're so careful with people. We really take care of them. We make up for it. 
nobody could make up for that. I mean, unless someone called the next day and said, hey, we're really sorry that happened. That never happens. Of course, we're looking out for you. Okay, that phone call did not happen. Um, and it, yeah, just no trust. And then you also unfortunately had another experience when you were waiting for the results of your biopsy. Yes, with the, the nurse who managed those results. Instead of telling me, here's when you'll get them, made a point of telling me, this was on a Tuesday, you probably won't get them until the next Monday. And I mean, my husband and I stood there in the hallway talking to her and saying, you're telling me I might have to wait an entire weekend to find out I have a disease that can kill me because of paperwork on someone's desk. Mm. And she said, well, I leave out four. Oh, that just, it just, it just breaks your heart because you are in the most vulnerable place you can be. The unknown is horrific. And they're telling you, you may have to wait until next week. And just, just because, yeah. yeah, because of procedure and, and the, the right radiologist might not be reading the scans or if they're reading them, they didn't get them in the system at the right time or, or whatever. It doesn't matter as a patient. You don't want to hear about the administrative problems. You want to hear about, okay, I need you to tell me my results before another two days pass by. And I've lost another five pounds of stress worry. And yeah, it's not okay. There definitely needs to be some changes in the system, 100%. Yeah. And the focus, you know, and, and the focus is so much on billing, right? Getting everything done for billing instead of for the patient. The patient yeah. needs to be at the center, the patient needs to be the priority. 100%. So we are going to take a quick break here in a, in a second, but when we get back, I do want to dig into this so much more because you've, you've really hit some really salient points about how your, how you had to transfer from being a nurse to being a patient and what, what that brought out to you. So we're going to do that, but listeners, please stay with us. We'll be back soon. If you need our services, please go to breastfriends.org and under patient programs, see what we can do for you. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444. Or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. 
you may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck, and my guest is Teresa Brown, nurse, author, speaker, advocate, and woman who has dealt with breast cancer. Boo to that. But that's why she's here today, and she has so much to share. So, Teresa, before break, we were kind of talking about the nurse-patient dichotomy. Were you able to take some of that, your knowledge as a nurse and move it over as a patient? Did that, do you feel like that changed your own advocacy for yourself? Yeah. And I had a slow realization that the way I had expected people to be as patients, again, more on an unconscious than a conscious level, but that wasn't working for me. So people should understand the whole healthcare system is like a giant assembly line, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. And everyone's a little busier than they should be. And so people don't like the person who kind of puts the brake on the assembly line because that just slows down other assembly lines and makes more work for everyone. So we kind of idealize the easy patient, right? The person who, oh, you've got a scan at seven this morning. Okay, they're ready. You know, oh, your test got postponed until tomorrow. Okay, they can handle it. Um, And unfortunately, patients who insist and ask a lot of questions, get this label, the difficult patient. Because it it takes, everything takes more time to deal with those patients. And nine times out of 10, it's the right thing to do because you need to give that patient peace of mind and show them that compassion that if you were the patient, you would want. But you, I imagine you learned a lot in that process. And you, you speak to the fact in the book that a couple of times you kind of went back and you're like, wow, I wish I had done some things differently. Yes. Because I learned that being the easy patient is really hard on patients. I mean, I'm a, I'm a patient person. I, I understand there are systems and people have to work and you, you can't always get things immediately, but waiting almost a week for a biopsy result, when I know there are places where you can get it an hour after the biopsy is done, um, or maybe at least a day, which in reality is when I got the result a day later. Um, so being the difficult patient, I realize is, is actually adult and appropriate, you know, don't be rude, don't yell at people, but to say, why is this taking so long? I don't understand. And I keep saying I want a bottom-up revolution. I want people to start asking questions to say, hey, let's slow down the assembly line just a minute. I don't quite get what you're saying. Or I really don't want to have to wait four weeks for my surgery. Could we do it earlier? Um, All these things that happen. Or I really don't want to wait four weeks. And then the clinician takes the time to tell you why that's okay. So I saw all these moments where... As practitioners, we're kind of relying on people to go along, to get along, and we want that from them, Um, but it's not fair. It's not a fair expectation. And I tell a story in the book about a patient who had 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 his, what we call induction chemo, his first round chemotherapy for leukemia. He'd come back for a follow-up. Um, He's going to spend two or three days in the hospital getting more chemo. And the plan was you're going to start at the outpatient center across the street, come in early, everything gets started early. You can leave earlier. So he came over, 
but he was supposed to be on IV fluids and he wasn't. So, okay, slightly annoying, call down and get a pump. Well, supply room said, we have no pumps. And for people not in healthcare, that's like Mm -hmm. a restaurant saying we have no forks. Like that just doesn't happen. Um, or, you know, we have no more, no more plates because our dishwasher isn't working. <laughs> so right. eat off your hands. I mean, but so, you know, no IV pump, no IV fluids, no chemotherapy. And I kept calling and they kept not having pumps. And I was really busy with my other patients. And this guy would come to the door of his room. And every time we saw me, give me this searing, oh. dirty look. Mm-hmm. Um, and as his nurse, I thought, you know, I get it, but you are going to get a pump. You are going to get your chemo. You won't be able to leave as early as you'd planned, but you know, we will take care of you in the end. After being a patient, it was one of those moments where I saw what got broken that day and Mm -hmm. his trust in us, we made a plan with him and then we blew it. You know, for all I know, he needed to leave early because his daughter was getting married or, you know, whatever. I mean, um, and sort of my assumption that, well, you're going to get your chemo and that's the most important thing was not seeing him as a full human being with autonomy who we had made a commitment to and broken it and not explained and not really cared, you know, (laughs) to be honest. Well, you're, you're, as you said, you're taking care of other patients at the same time. It it wasn't your fault. You were just the middle person trying to deal with the expectations on both sides, still trying to get good care for your patient, but that wasn't happening. No fault of your own, but it, it is what it is. So I, I think the the overall lesson from from this is we talk about being your own advocate on the show all the time because it's so so important and so many times we're we have that implicit trust in our medical professionals but you need to ask questions mm-hmm. and but like you said don't be rude be kind and still ask the questions that you need to get the best treatment for yourself. Yeah and you know it probably would have annoyed me if if he had done this but maybe he needed to call the oncologist's office and say, Hey, what's going on? Um, you know, and, and, and then that office needs to come to me with kindness and compassion and say, how can we get this moving? You know, if an attending physician calls the supply room and says, we need an IV pump right now, they're going to find one, <laughs> you know, Whereas if it's me calling, uh, you know, it's easy, it's much easier to put me off. I'm sorry to say, but that's the reality Yeah. So instead of us all kind of circling around this anger and sense of disappointment, if we had put that energy into solving the problem, it it would have made everything better for everyone, really, but especially for the patient. Definitely. You know, and I kind of backtracking to your treatment journey a little bit. Did you know your oncology team that you were working with when you were in treatment? No. And uh, I have to say, I, I was because you were working with generally different different cancers or different, you know, or the hospice end of life. So, just curious about that one, right? No, I, I, I did not. I did not know any of them when I was because I, I feel like that would that would add to the emotions of the whole thing too. So, probably best, like you know, you don't have your family operate on you, you don't have your friends treat you as well, um, especially in something like a cancer diagnosis. I would imagine. Yeah. And I have a a very good friend who I I talk about, um, who's a breast surgeon and he recommended the surgeon I I went with, but I told him, I said, I don't want you to be my surgeon. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. So 
but good to get those recommendations because that's super important. I, I did the same thing. I had multiple recommendations from three people to the same surgeon. So that's how I knew that I had, I was going in with a good surgeon. So I was very happy about that. Now, looking, looking back on your, your time as um, a nurse, when you were treating these patients, I know hindsight is 2020, but what, what do you wish you may have done differently overall? I wish I had had a better understanding of the emotional weight they were carrying. Um, I, I think in, in for nurses and probably for physicians and, and all people in healthcare, it's very easy to get caught up in sort of a, a task mentality. This needs to be done. And I need to see this person, this and this and this and check this off and et cetera, et cetera. And um, electronic health records have, have definitely made that problem a lot worse. So I cared about my patients a lot, but, but that sense of what do I need to do today was always primary in part, that's my job. Right. And that's what I get judged on, but I, I wish I had been able to do that while still holding. These are people who are really going through a lot and, and trying to have that much more in the front of my mind instead of the back of my mind. And whenever I say that, I I give a caveat because nobody can come to work feeling hundred percent. Wow. Every single person here is afraid they're going to die. How can I, how can I help them today? You know, you, that's too much of a burden. You can't do that. You'll burn out in six months Mm -hmm. to have more of a sense of you know, this person is an individual, this person is an individual, this person is an individual, not just, oh, these are the patients, they're all kind of going through the same thing. Um, It's hard to get that balance right. And when you're overworked, as pretty much everyone in healthcare is right now, it's, it's much, much harder to do that. Well, and especially the, the the majority of the burden is on nurses in particular. And be, you you do, yes, the doctors go in, they get the cancer out or figure out a treatment plan to, you know, help you live a decent life if you still have, you know, if you're thriving with it. But the nurses do the the majority of the the, the physical and paint, you know, day-to-day contact with the patients, especially in a hospital setting. So they're not looking to their doctors to be, you know, wonderful, you know, bedside manner. It's really the nurses and, but you are so overworked and overwhelmed. It's got to be really challenging. It is. And and there are patients who this happens over and over and over again, they will complain about, Oh, I'm, I'm in such pain and Oh, I couldn't sleep last night or, Oh, the nausea is terrible. And then the attending physician and the interns and residents come in on morning rounds. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. You know, and then it falls to the nurse to say, wait, you're having some pain, right? And, and people, if I prompted them, they, they were able to talk about it. Um, but I think people feel such tremendous pressure, like they have to uh, perform for the doctor. You know, they have to be okay for the doctor, which is it's uh, a good, it's good patient syndrome. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, But that also puts nurses in a really hard situation because then we would call and say, Hey, they're feeling really nauseated. Oh, really? They didn't say that at rounds. They didn't say that when I talked to them. You're like, do you think I'm making it up? I mean, just like, why would I be calling you? I mean, it it doesn't come down to that, but, 
you know, that makes it uh, just harder for everyone too. Um, but yeah, people want to be the good, oh, a good patient is someone who doesn't complain, mm-hmm. um, but then they also don't want to suffer in silence, which I 100% agree. They, no one needs to do that or should do that. Um, but then again, yeah, the nurse is stuck in the middle. Well, and, and you're looking at the, the, the doctor as the authority figure and, and you want to please them, but the nurses, they, I I'm guess myself included, I feel like I'm more of a connection with my nurses because they're not doctors, even though the amount of schooling and education and, you know, practical learning is, is right up there as well. But I, I've always felt more of a connection with my nurses and, you know, I I've learned to be very vocal with my, my doctors, but it's taken time. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard for people. And we, you know, the average patient is interrupted. What is it? 17 seconds into their first sentence when they're talking to an MD and what is the message there, but hurry up, you're wasting my time. Get to the point. What's the matter with you? You know, even someone who's incredibly kind. Um, and I, I've always made it a point to find primary care physicians who don't do that. Um, but sometimes people don't have a choice or they don't understand that that's really not okay. It's not that hard to spend two minutes listening to someone and then deciding what they need. But it, it's something about the training and then cultural expectations that, oh, doctor's time is very important. I cannot, you know, disrupt the doctor with something as small as my incredible pain that I'm having after my (laughs) surgery or, you know. Um, So how do you feel that looking at kind of the things we've discussed so far and, and what you talked about in healing, that we can help improve the compassion that's given to patients overall? That is completely possible. And, uh, you know, I I referenced this book called Compassionomics, which is based on work done by two physicians who found that small interventions can make a huge difference and actually save money. So they, they went and looked at all kinds of studies that were done looking at compassionate care, which, which is never really called that. Like it's called all kinds of different things. So first they had to sort that out. Um, But there were two different studies where pre-surgery, if patients had an intervention, one of them, one group had an extra visit from an anesthesiologist, Um, one group in a different study had a visit from a nurse before the operation trained in compassionate interventions. And both those groups, as opposed opposed to the controls who had no extra intervention, reported less pain after surgery. Isn't that amazing? Interesting. Um, so they needed less pain medication. They needed mm-hmm. less attention. And, and if, you, if you just think about that, it makes so much sense. Think about a situation, say, you, you know, you're going to the dentist, which I have a lot of anxiety about. Um, you know, if you hundred percent, mm-hmm. right. People are rude to you and say, open your mouth. What's going on? You know, I mean, they're never like that at my dentist, of course, but um, um, you know, you're going to, tense up, everything is going to hurt more. Um, But if people are kind, they make you feel comfortable, you're going to be calm, your heart rate is going to go down, you're not going to be releasing stress hormones. There's a physiological reaction to compassion that makes people do better. And it does save money in the end. 
Now, what happens in a situation like this where over two years into a global pandemic, I guess it's now endemic. I don't, I don't know that all that, but um, compassion fatigue, like everyone is broken and worn out. What do we do, especially for the nurses who are just in burnout mode? That is, is such a great and hard question. And it is something I'm quite worried about. What's going to have to happen is hospitals and administrators are going to have to pay their nurses more, improve the work environment, work on staffing. And there is such a strong resistance to doing that. That's going to have to change. It's the only solution. I don't know what it's going to take for that to change, um, but it's going to have to happen. I mean, at some point, they're going to have to realize, hey, we're going to have to do something to keep nurses on the job. And, you know, that's for the future of our healthcare system. And maybe the government's going to have to intervene to make rules that make that possible. I don't care how it happens, but it's going to have to happen. 100%. We're definitely going to talk more about that because it's it's a really big topic, but we are going to take another break. So listeners, stay with us. If you would like to be my guest or share your warrior story, please email me at michellebeck at breastfriends.org. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck. My guest is Teresa Brown, author, speaker, educator, and so many things, uh, nurse that, you know, first and foremost, and was what led to all the other things. But Teresa, we were talking before break about burnout and there and COVID and how the pandemic has led to a lot of difficulty and something called the great resignation where people are quitting their jobs left and right in every field possible. Is there something that patients or we as a society can do? You know, we talked about laws changing or different things, but is, is there something that we can do to support 
our, our healthcare specialists, especially our nurses? Yes, definitely. I would say if you have a, a good experience, uh, let that person know or let, let the hospital know. Um, if you have a bad experience, this is where you can really make a difference. Instead of just blaming, say, the nurse who you felt like didn't take good care of you. I mean, barring sort of, you know, egregious incompetence, right? Sure. But try and think about, is does this nurse seem just really overworked? Is he not, wasn't he not able to be there for me because he had so much going on, which, which is hard to tell when you're just in a hospital room. But if you can make your complaint that way, oh, it seemed like the, the nurses weren't getting enough support, not from anything he said, I just noticed that. Mm-hmm. So make your complaint more global because in healthcare, what, what management really likes to do is find someone to blame. And it's usually the lowest status person, right? Oh, it's, it's the housekeeping person's fault. It's the nurse's fault. You want to make something that's more global and says, you know, I, I really, I'm really not sure if I would recommend this hospital or come back because this, this, and this happened. And it just seems like you're not managing things well. So that's one thing. Um, I mean, also, you know, uh, that healthcare is so politicized now, but if you care about healthcare being high quality, people being able to afford their healthcare, um, you know, I think we're the richest country in the world. Every American should have health access to healthcare and health insurance of some kind that they can afford. So think when you vote, which candidate is really looking out for healthcare? Ask those questions. If you go to candidate forums, you know, really put healthcare on the front burner. And I, I know it's, it's, it, you know, there are a lot of really difficult things, uh, issues happening in our country right now, mm-hmm. but we're all going to be sick at some point and, and need care. So it matters. So if you can take the long view use your words wisely, and also just speak up. And if you don't get answers, go up the chain of command, you know, and say, here's what happened. Here's what went wrong. Here's what I want to know. Keep doing that. If more and more and more people did that, these institutions would have to change, right? Um, They can't just tell you, hey, just shut up and do what you're told because (laughs) You know, that's not how it works. They all have patient bill of rights. They all have mission statements. So keep asking questions. Keep pushing back against the system. It's your right to do that. Um, It's totally reasonable, completely adult. And uh, for what it's worth, I 100% support you. You know, you you can email me and say, I tried to do this, Teresa, and they were really rude to me. And then I'll I'll think more about what to do. well, that kind of leads me to what I wanted to talk about next, because so many people say that our healthcare system in America is broken for many reasons. And I, I highlighted one comment in the book, and it says the ideal in healthcare is we treat all comers. Yes, is that right? All comers, and we yeah. treat them the same no matter where they live. That's one definition of compassion. So that kind of brings in what we what we hope for. But we here in the states, we we pay a lot of money generally for healthcare, and like you said, we are the richest country in the world. Presumably, I don't have data on that, so don't quote right. me. But it's I if it's broken. It seems. Well, 
What is that about? Yeah, at some point, several years ago now, com- companies figured out, hey, we can make a lot of money off of healthcare, and um, you know, so not-for-profits started acting more and more like for-profits. There are a lot of nursing homes and hospitals now that have been bought up by private equity firms. A lot of hospices are fifty percent of hospices are for-profit. And that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. To me, that's an oxymoron. And, you know, but people have this idea that in the U.S., well, capitalism means competition, means more efficiency, means prices go down. That is often true. That is not true in healthcare because it's a it's a sort of built in monopolistic system. Right. There's not I mean, there used to be 10 different hospitals um, in Pittsburgh, but now they're basically owned by two systems. And our insurance only pays if we go to one set of hospitals in that system. And so people don't have a choice. Like, so shop around. Well, I I mean, I can't shop around, right? Mm -hmm. Unless I want to pay out of pocket, um, which I don't (laughs) because it's really expensive. So we need either more regulation, um, more controls of not-for-profits being made to act more like not-for-profits. I mean, if it were up to me, I would say any healthcare entity that takes Medicaid or Medicare money has to be a not-for-profit, like, bam, just like that. Um, Because there's too much money being siphoned off the top and the sides and going to insurance company administrators and pharma and device manufacturers. And then the working folk who make the care happen, in particular nurses, um, but also patients are are getting really squeezed. And we happen to have great insurance. So my personal cost for my treatment was minimal. But people should know the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in the U.S. is healthcare costs. Wow. Um, You know, I find that shameful. It is. And we, when my, this is personal antidote real quick. When my, I was diagnosed in December, my first time around early December. And so I had all the tests and the, this and the, that, and I hit my $5,000 out of pocket max in December. Well, I didn't have my surgeries until January and February. So I hit literally in two months, $10,000 out of pocket. Who, who has that laying around? I mean, if you're smart, you do, but you know, we, we didn't. And I mean, I'm thankful that I had family help at the time, but you know, at that, if I didn't hundred percent bankrupt right there. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's no, there's no reason for it behind some people are getting really rich. Um, and, and the other thing about that that I also really want people to think about is there's a, there's a small army of paper pushers and bureaucrats who, who administrate these systems, right? Like if you have to call insurance and get a pre-authorization, you know, that's a person taking those phone calls, making those judgments or passing them up the line, however it works. That person could be working on patient safety. They could be working on efficiency. They could be working on you know, how do we get every patient who needs to walk to walk every day? I mean, there, there is so much energy that goes into money that could go in to people. And, and I'm not saying these companies should not make a profit. It's fine to make a profit, but 
not to the extent that it's taking things away from patients, away from nurses. You know, there, there are uh, healthcare workers in Pittsburgh who are paid so little, they have to go to food banks to supplement the amount of food they can get, you know, full-time workers. Uh, that's just disgraceful. <laughs> I mean, yes, it you know, is. Yeah. It, 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 oh, book down. That. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently it was like, t- t- tell the title of the book again. I think it was what it was saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that care that starts with the patient then also needs to extend to all the people working in healthcare. And, and, and there are even, you know, there are a lot of physicians getting burnt out, worn down. Um, the, the number of physicians who die by suicide is twice that of the general population. So I think some people say, well, doctors are doing fine. And, you know, doctors are struggling also. It's, it's across the board, very, very hard. Definitely. So we are almost out of time and you, we have, I had so many other topics I wanted to cover today. So I'm going to give you the choice. Do you want to talk about um, cancer as a war? Do you want to talk about screening ages or do you want to talk about the discrepancy in the healthcare community for people of color? They're all very important. So pick one. Oh, let's do door number three. Okay, okay perfect. <laughs> People of color. Yeah, I um I found out more about this as I was working on the book, and that uh, Black Americans have the worst cancer outcomes of any group in the U.S. Um, uh, Latino women have uh, twice as many of them, I think, die of breast cancer as white women. And just across the board, you hear this term health disparities and like, uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that for many people who are black or Latino or um, LGBTQ or any of a number of marginalized groups, it's, it's really hard to get the health care that you need. Um, and I, I talk about one study where they found that for Black Americans, it can be all kinds of things. You can't take time off work to go to the doctor. You don't have a primary care provider. You have no way to get to the doctor's office. You can't afford the co-pays. You know, all these things that keep people from getting the care they need. And there's there's a history of racism that tracks with mm-hmm. the history of the construction of healthcare in the United States, uh, which is really, really sad, um, really, really sad. So that's a, a big job that we have ahead of, ahead of us is how do we equalize for everyone in terms of skin color, income level, uh, sexual orientation. And for me, that's a really, really strong argument for some kind of universal health care, whether it's mm-hmm. Medicare for all, affordable in- insurance for all, which in the European countries where they do that, all the insurance companies are not for profit. Um, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that would be my pitch for, wow, we could equalize so much about access if we just gave everyone a, a way to get affordable health care. And I don't consider what you went through affordable either. No, (laughs) but as, as a middle-class white woman, I'm very lucky. And I know that. 
And there, there's so many discrepancies that really need to be taken care of. And obviously we have systemic racism in every part of our country, which is a whole separate issue that I, I can't dig into today because we're out of time, unfortunately. So Teresa, last, last giveaway or last takeaway for our listeners um, about what was the most important thing you learned as going and being a nurse to a patient. Being a patient is really, really, really hard. So do what you need to do for yourself. It's your life. You only get one. Perfect. Where can our listeners find your book or follow you on social media? If, if that is, you know, if that's yeah. something you would like. Yes, you can find the book. Uh, any, it should be anywhere. Books are sold. Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. Uh, you can find me on my website at TeresaBrownRN.com. I'm on Twitter at at Teresa Brown and I'm on Instagram at at Teresa Brown RN 2021. And I would love to hear from you. Great, Teresa. Thank you so much for being here today. Definitely eye-opening for me in a lot of ways. Um, You know, I've, I've been the patient, but I wasn't the nurse before. So coming from a completely different perspective. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for having me. It was great. Perfect. So listeners, if you or a loved one need our services, please go to breastfriends.org and see what we can do for you under patient programs, or we have a lot of events coming up this summer, and we'd love you to become a part of our organization. If you'd like to donate, you can do that on our website as well, or text BF radio to 41444 to ensure that no one goes through cancer alone. If you'd like to be my guest or submit your warrior story to me, please email me at Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. You can find past episodes on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel or wherever you get your podcasts. And now you can watch all the new episodes on the Breast Friends YouTube channel. So please check it out and subscribe. We'll be back next week. And until then, remember, we rise by lifting each other. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Please join Michelle Beck again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We rise by lifting each other.